you're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to, be, I'm going to begin reading uh, in just a minute in verse 20, but uh, there are When we have a conversation about relationship with God, there are two aspects of it that we would anticipate because it's the same two aspects that come in any relationship between any two friends, any two uh, partners, husband and wife. It's the, it's the same two, it's the same two things. The first aspect of this relationship would be almost this involuntary connection that we make between people. It's not something that is planned. It's not something that we that we that we have committed to or have to work at. It's just this very natural, almost an involuntary connection that we make, and we have that involuntary connection with God. It is this, it's the more spontaneous, it's what happens when we're in worship, that we're in a moment, it doesn't, it doesn't require much thought, it doesn't require much consideration, it's a very natural connection between us and God, the same way it is between us and a friend or husband or wife or child. So we, we understand that part of the relationship recognize it, understand the value of it. But there is another piece of relationship that can only really be established when there is uh, a yielding of our will to the will of someone else. It is something that is specifically intentional, specifically thought through, specifically worked at, to the, to the recognition that between Jan and I, not only do we have this, this connection, this, this, I guess I could best describe it as chemistry, but we also have this yielding that's necessary in relationship to one another to recognize her, the value she brings, her recognizing the value that I bring in, in our intentional yielding of our will to the will of someone else. And we certainly understand that we have this unusual relationship with God, but we also must have this intentional yielding of our will to him. The Christian life will always take on a funny look if this isn't present in the story. In, in my office, uh, I dug out from below one of the cabinets as I'm preparing to move out of that office, and uh, I found uh, an illustration that I used many years ago with, when I was helping with uh, the children's messages down here, and I had built, I'd built a toolbox. It's about this long, and sides, ends, bottom, comes up and has a handle on it. But right next to it, there's another one 
where it has exactly the same parts, but it is absolutely unusable because not any of the parts are put together correctly. You wouldn't even be able to tell it was a toolbox because there's, there's an end here and it's sticking up at this kind of an angle. There's one of the sides and then there's the handle goes, that goes through the hole goes out by itself. It doesn't connect to anything. But every piece is there just put together incorrectly. When we don't recognize this aspect, our yielding our will to his, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we don't understand this aspect of the Christian life, then all the aspects of the, of the relationship should be in place, but it will look distorted. It will look ineffective. It won't look functional. There's another one of those toolboxes there where certain some of the pieces are missing. There's another one sitting there that all the pieces are there, but none of them are put together. And then there's this piece of cardboard that I worked on that says, but these are, these are the instructions on how this is supposed to go. Showing the kids this, what, what our lives look like when you follow the directions, when you follow the instructions, the will of God, this is, you find that there's something usable. You'll find that we become the evidence of Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship. We look like him. When we understand what it means to, to submit our will to his will, then there are certain things that begin to happen very naturally that we don't really have to work at because we, we have found the proper position between us and the Father. My will submitted to his will. When we get there, it helps us to navigate through the options that are set before us. You see, there's not, this takes a minute to get your mind around, uh, but there has to be options in the Christian life for the image of God to be displayed. That's like, okay, I, I, I'm not sure I understand that. But if, if you're standing here and you've got, and you've got an option of, of this and this. There's, there's two options in front of me. The value of this option is, is multifaceted. But if, if I will stop here and, and I have submitted my life, my will to his will, which of these do I want? His, I want the one he wants. And when, I, when, I, when this gets put on display that I want what he wants, then I begin to be set aside, called out, sanctified. And it begins to be evident because that which I could have chosen, I didn't choose. I chose his will so that now not only did I choose his will, his image gets put on display in that choice. That making sense? Maybe? And it really begins to show because this choice was also possible. My will, my choice, I could have picked this. But when the, when the choice came and I've, and I've yielded my will to the will of the Father, then I pick what he picks 
set against that which I would have picked, and now his image, his will in my life gets put on display because it's set in contrast to something else. You take this away, you take the option away, and it's like, well, I don't know if I picked it because he picked it or because I picked it. There was just the one option. You see, Jesus stood out among many because the choices he made every day was according to that prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So every day he was walking in, in this display of the Father's will. Do you think it was catching any notice? It caught notice everywhere, every day, but it was because in that prayer he himself is saying, I want to yield my human will to yours. It's the recognition that, Father, you know what's best, and you will always do what's right, and I can trust that, and I can follow it. So that happens both in trials and in blessings. By our choices, yielded to the Father, by our choices, we offer worship that comes from willful choice. Now, is this a big deal? It's, it is, in many ways, in, in so much of the aspects of the Christian life, it is one of the biggest things. Because it's still part of our struggle, all of us, on a daily basis, minute by minute, to yield my will to his, so that what, so that what my life looks like, it looks like him and not me. It's in that choice that we are, we are transformed or we are, or we are stuck. If we, don't, if we don't learn very specifically to yield our will to the will of the Father, there is always a very specific consequence. So let's go to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in, uh, in verse 20. We know this passage very well. Jesus has just read uh, this passage that comes from Isaiah 61, 1, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's, we read, that's Isaiah 61, 1. But in verse 20, and he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me, This proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard uh, done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but none of them was, but none, I'm sorry, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Zarepta, a city of Zidon, 
unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Because what was he saying? There was so much offered, and only this widow took it. There was so much offered, and only Naaman took it. And they are understanding what Jesus is saying. He is, he's framing them in, in the same consequence. And all in the synagogue that, were, that heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereon, whereon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. What happened between verse 22 when they're saying, what gracious words, what amazing words this man is sharing. And they end that by saying, is not this Joseph's son? That's verse 22. Now, when, when we get to verse 28, they are filled with wrath. I mean, something happened between 22 and 28 that must have been terribly powerful for them to go from these people who were sitting fascinated and amazed by what Jesus was telling them. And you can even feel this t tenderness or this anticipation of these people as they were listening to Jesus as he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61 and were, and were touched because he's saying, I have come. The Messiah will come and he will set captives free. He will open prison doors. And they're saying, what gracious words, he's saying. And Jesus says, and today, these words are fulfilled in your ears. And they're fascinated by it in verse 22. By verse 28, they're so angry at him that they take him to the edge of this hill and they want to kill him. And he's turns and he walks through them and he leaves. So what happened? What is found in this question is not this Joseph's son. When we, when we understand that what happened in that moment, what gracious words, is not this Joseph's son? we will understand why we have such a hard time yielding our will to his will. It's found in that question. And so while we, when we unpack this a little bit, if, if, if we're searching for it, we will actually see what happened in that question is not this Joseph's son. Before we unpack it. I want us to go to the book of Mark chapter 6 because the same story in similar ways is, re is recorded there. I want to I read it from Mark chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing 
him were astonished, saying, From whence has this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Because you can tell that there had already been great miracles done in Capernaum and other places, because that's what they requested. We know that those were done there. We would really like for you to come back and do this, the great miracles in, in your own country. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and, and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. You see the same transition? They were amazed by his wisdom. Where does it come from? And then they said, isn't this isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the carpenter that we, have, that we have seen growing up? But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching I wish we could fully unlock this. I wish the Christian world would fully embrace what's unlocked. Because it does at least make me ponder. Why don't we see him moving more in the miraculous the way we would really like to see? I mean... I don't know many of us as believers that can read the Gospels and not wish that some of those manifestations would occur right here, right now, tonight. I don't know how to get away from that. There's something sown very deeply in me that I would love to see that, that, that's those insimular manifestations uh, right now. Maybe, maybe that's incorrect of me to think about that, but it's still very real to me. I'd love to see it. But wonder what, I wonder what's in this. Is not this Joseph's son, is not this the carpenter. By what Jesus said, we begin to get a hint. We begin to understand this first thing. By his response, we know their skepticism. By what he's saying, he's beginning to reveal the, what actually got told us in Mark chapter, chapter 6, that the things he would have loved to do, the great miracles that he had come prepared to do, that he would have easily done, they could not be done because of their unbelief. They couldn't be done because these people were skeptical. Now, I... I don't ask you to just do this individually, but just on a large scale, how skeptical do you think the Christian world is of God? Now, again, I can't, I don't have a gauge for this, but I can tell you that when we go into church week after week after week, and there's no anticipation that God will show up, there's no anticipation that the miraculous will happen. There's no, there's no expectation that anyone will be transformed. 
it tells me that, that there could be at least some percentage of skepticism from the people who've come in because they didn't see anything last week. They haven't seen God move powerfully in so long that they're skeptical that that's, maybe that day's over. Maybe that day doesn't exist anymore. And I, I, don't, I can't testify on anyone's behalf about this morning. But this morning was an unusual morning for me to realize when God, when God said, I need this to be quiet this morning. I need it to be tender. I need to whisper this to them. For me to realize that he not only wanted me to speak the words that he gave me to speak, but he wanted them delivered quietly and tenderly. Man, that is not typical Randy. That is not easy. It was just, it was just this real mindful that I, that I have to release this in the spirit the way that he gave it to me in the spirit because the delivery of it was as necessary as the words released in it. This was an unusual morning to me. And I felt more power this morning in the quietness than I've experienced in, 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 in a while. Not because of great displays, but it's like he said, I want, I'm going to whisper it because I want it to be a real short trip between what they hear in, in their head, it makes sense, I want it to be a real short trip to their heart. I don't, I'm not going to give this in deep, in deep ways, profound ways. I'm not, this, isn't, this is going to be very easy for them to receive and let it get straight to their heart. And that was, the, that was the assurance that he gave. But with every manifestation, every experience, every time we have an encounter with God, the skepticism of God goes down. I, you, we don't have to back up far in our own history, my history, to realize that much of what happened in my Christian life was going through the motions that I knew I was expected to go, what I was supposed to do. But with every encounter, and, and again, by the very nature of the job that I get to hold, the calling that God has placed on my life, I get to see so many. I get to see 14-year-old boys responding to the Holy Spirit Powerfully, I, I get to watch this woman that's over 70 years old watching these chains of Isaiah 61 fall off of her, watching those doors open, watching her take first steps in freedom that she's never experienced in all of her life. I get to watch that. And I will tell you that there is, there's not much skepticism left in me. And I'm, I'm not saying that I... I have arrived. I'm saying that when, when you experience God and you watch him heal and you watch him transform and you watch him do what he does, man, it will tear out, it will tear at the questions, the skepticism that we have. I know 
when they ask in this question, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? One of the largest things that was hindering them was something that they already knew. They could not get over what they already knew. They couldn't embrace him as the Messiah. They couldn't embrace him as the Savior. They couldn't embrace him as the one who came to heal or to restore and and to do all that he wanted to do. They couldn't embrace that because they were bound in, in some former thing they knew. They knew he was Joseph's son. Now in Capernaum, they might not have known that. So when he begins to move, they accept generally that this is, there's something unusual here. But in, his, in this place where he was the most known. Now again, I'm, I, I don't want to take this, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but where today would we say that he's the most known? Right here. Among his people, he's the most known And we get hung up so much on some former thing we once knew. We're rarely held up by another's opinion or perspective. What we get bound up in is what what I'm already hanging on to. You know, and it it was Dale's teaching before me. He said, I never have trouble teaching people. I have a lot of trouble unlearning them. Because that's his announcement. I'm having a hard time getting them to turn loose of some former thing that they knew because that former thing is not letting them move forward. And and that's when we ask what happened, it happened in that question. Is this not Joseph's son? There was the former thing. There was that question that they, that they couldn't get past. They pointed to the humanity and could not see his deity. Now, how does this happen? Now, again, we understand this because here's this figure of Jesus, this man that they grew up around, and they were, they were held examining his humanity, processing his humanity, Joseph's son, a carpenter, Mary's son, the brother of this one, the brother of this one, the brother of this one. They were examining the humanity, and the humanity of Jesus was getting in the way of them actually seeing the greater purpose for which he came. So how does that look for you and I today? This is, this, this would be much more effective probably if I had a flip chart, so I'm going to have to draw this in the air, but We'll get it. Y'all have seen me draw this before. And I'm going to give y'all a a wide berth for disagreement here, as I always try to do. Uh, It's pretty easy to understand that one of the common problems, if if I write the word God right here in the middle of this piece of paper, Again, it's very unfortunate, but very typical. If I draw a line below that word, God, and I write the word man below it, then it's very easy for us to understand that one of the problems in the Christian world is that 
if I develop a view of God, my understanding of him, beginning with man, and then trying to reason up an understanding of God, the most unfortunate thing I'm going to do is I'm going to assign God human qualities. The worst one, at least for me, is that man down here is variable. I can make him happy, and I can make him angry, and I can disappoint him, or I can please him. If, if we use man and improve him a hundredfold to come up with a view of God, I'm still going to assign God some of those qualities. And one of those qualities that we assign God is that God is also variable. I can disappoint him. I can make him happy. I can frustrate him. Because I ask people all the time, if you're looking into God's face, what do you think he would say to you? Well, most of them say he's got his, his arms crossed saying, you again? That's what they think God, how God sees them. As if they could disappoint him. As if they could frustrate him. As if he was reacting to them. And we assign God human qualities. Do you think those human qualities of God become a stumbling block between us, between us seeing him truly in, his, in, a, in a human way or to being able to see, fully see him as the father that he truly is? You see, they were stumbling over the humanity of Jesus that they previously knew. If we assign God human qualities, we will, we will stumble, stumble over the same humanity. Because what God intended, and we're, we're not confused by this, John 14, 15, 16, as Jesus was going away, he made this very clear. He said, I want you to know. I want you to know me. I want you to know the Father. I want you to understand this. And, and I'm going to give you the ultimate answer. I'm going to send you the spirit of truth, and he will reveal all truth to you. So instead of reasoning up from mankind to understand who God is, what, what, did God, what was the real design? God says, by the Spirit, I'm going to reveal down to you this understanding of God so that you won't, you won't misunderstand Him. You won't be confused by His heart. You'll recognize Him as your Father, not just in a, a general parental way, not only just, but in a very functional, practical way that He's your Father. And I have people tell me all the time, well, I didn't have a father. I didn't have a good father figure. And I want to tell them, and I do tell them, that works for a little while, but you and I now as mature adults are not stumbling over his humanity anymore. And I don't have to, I don't have to say, well, my father wasn't a real good role model about who God is. Because we were never designed to understand him from the bottom up. It has always been designed for us to understand him top down. By God revealing himself to us. And so there's a point where I have to quit pointing to my earthly father as a poor example. Because I have the perfect example of the Holy Spirit who's revealing the father to me now. There's, a, there's some place where that old thought of, well, it was my father, I have to let go of that. 
Because all that's saying is I'm still functioning bottom up. Still trying to understand God by looking at some form of man and misunderstanding him. I don't, I, you know, it's like I've never really been able to connect with God. I never really felt his love because I wasn't loved by my father. Well, there's somewhere by the spirit of God in Revelation that he's going to tell us that God so loved you. Behold what manner of love it was. And that begins to replace our human evaluation. We look at this and say, how could they? I look at us who, as I said this morning, we do have the 66 books. We do have the full revelation. We do have the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We do have this great preponderance of evidence, and we still examine God in human terms, thinking somehow he's going to respond to us in some human way. They were stumbling over his humanity, and they couldn't see the fullness of his deity. They couldn't see all that he came to express. They couldn't see all that the Father wanted to put on display. The other other thing here, there's a couple more. They had to keep things understandable and emotionally acceptable to maintain their beliefs. You see, they already had the beliefs captured. They already had them in the parentheses, so they had to keep things understandable. I shared with you all last Sunday, I think, that one of the greater difficulties that's happening in the Christian world today is we've lost our spiritual imagination. It's very, very difficult for God to bring fullness and, revela- and fullness in revelation to us if we don't have an imagination that is, that is formed and originates in our spirit. It's very difficult to have any concept of heaven in any truthful terms if we don't have a spiritually fed imagination. It's hard for us to see ourselves in greater or grander terms than what I'm currently seeing of myself if I have no spiritual imagination. Again, I'm not talking about just going and dreaming strange dreams. I'm talking about actually letting God show us something that we've never seen before. Prophecy is based on our ability and our willingness to see that which God sees. But to me, I can only imagine. And God's saying, I need you to have that. But we have such a determination to keep things understandable. Most of the time when I lose people in Bible studies, and some of you all have witnessed this, you know, we'll start with 40 or 50 in the Bible study when I start teaching it in Lubbock, and we'll end up with 30 or 25. And it's generally because something I say cuts across something that they, have, that they know. And it cuts across, and they're not willing to even examine what was said because it cut across something that they formerly knew. It's, it's amazing to watch this happen. I've been in so many of these conversations. 
It's, it, it's interesting to watch. But when Dale came, he cut across so many things. I mean, it was, some of them were like, whoa. You just, I, I, I was very grateful that when, when Dale came, he came, when he came his interim, he went upstairs and he was in the classroom where I taught Sunday school and he saw body, soul, and spirit on the, on the wall, on the, on the whiteboard. And he asked me up there, he said, who teaches this? And I said, well, this, this is the classroom where I teach. I, I teach body, soul, and spirit. And he said, is it received here? And I said, well, I don't teach it to everybody, but in this class it is. And he said, if they'll believe that, he said, there's no limit where we can go. I was so grateful that that piece of it had already been shown to me by not, not only by Major Ian Thomas, but by Edwin Wilson, who was a study partner of Dale's, that I'd already been introduced. Some of us had already been introduced, introduced a little bit to body, soul, and spirit by these, by these other men. But Dale cut across so many things. And when the, when, when the Lord began to bring these revelations, it's not easy for somebody to hear something that I say that's, that cuts a, at a strange angle, not that it's just abrupt, hidden head to head, but it cuts across at a strange angle. Like, can that, can that be right? Can that really be right? And, and we watch in those Bible studies in Lubbock, this trickling off. And, and some say, sometimes they'll let me know, sometimes they won't. But, but I hear it's like, you know, and I'm always amazed at what they're hanging on to. I'm always amazed that the, the, you're taking a stand on this? That this is where you lock down? I can see some big things for, where you lock down, but I, I would not have ever imagined this. But they're holding on to some former thing because they need so desperately to keep it understandable and to keep it at an emotional level that's acceptable. Let me read that one again before I move on. They had to keep things understandable and emotionally acceptable to maintain their beliefs. You sitting here, something cutting across your grain, something cutting across something that you formerly heard, when God says, and we finally understand this, the teaching of repentance, he's saying, I'm not telling you that what you were believing was wrong. I want to add something to it. I want to grow you in that truth. Again, I shared this this morning. When he said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said, repent, change your mind. He didn't go and, and say all the law that you've been following, everything that you've done in the Old Testament has been wrong. He didn't, there was no denouncing of those things. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a new thing now and I need you to change your mind. I need you to grow into that which is coming. That's repentance to change our mind. And so often the things that I'm learning only seem like they're cutting. But when we finally understand them, we realize that they are in step with what I already knew. He's just taking me beyond what I already knew. 
But man, when we get determined, like they were here, to hang on to, because they're, they're stating the obvious. This is Joseph's son. They needed to bring it back to something understandable because when, when he's saying, when he said to them, today, these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. You think that cut across some of their perspective of who this carpenter was? So they begin to state the obvious because they, they have to keep it understandable. In Jesus' conclusion that we read, what was the real reason? The skepticism was right. The fact that they, they were hindered by what they already knew. They pointed to his humanity, couldn't accept the miraculous. They had to keep things understandable and emotionally acceptable to maintain their beliefs. And Jesus' conclusion was, I can't do much because of unbelief. Because that's the way it looks. That's the summary of it. It's unbelief. Whether it be caused by the skepticism, caused by the forcing of revelation to, to yield to some former thing, seeing God in human terms that cause us to be limited in what we anticipate from him, whatever it happened to be, Jesus' conclusion was the reason I can't do more is unbelief. Their failure, not his, this is key. It wasn't him. Most of us, when we consider the miraculous, the supernatural, the conclusion is God changed. That's the typical conclusion. Yes, God did it. I don't doubt he did what happened in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't doubt what happened in the parting of the Red Sea. I don't doubt any of that stuff. But God has now changed. Because if he didn't change, then I should still anticipate those things. I should still live expectantly of those miraculous things. Most believers have concluded that for some reason, some justifiable reason, God no longer does what God once did. And he says, I'm the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Back here, they saw the supernatural because it took the supernatural to move these people. We step into the early days of the New Testament, and he moves in the powerful and the supernatural. Why? Because these were a group of people who had been stuck in a former thing, and there was great evidence that was needed to get them to believe in a new thing, to trust in something that was there, has human nature so changed that God still wouldn't have a great desire to transform and to heal dynamically so that those who didn't believe, those who hadn't seen, and when we, when we believe God changed, 
and took and took the supernatural away. What are we what are we going now to tell the world about the the, perp, the grand purpose, the great purpose, the great evidence of a transformed life. You know, you know where we put the responsibility? When we take the miraculous of God away and make him human, where do we put the great evidence, the preponderance of evidence on, on the proof that he's God? We put it on our ability to behave. And we're trying to tell of a supernatural God who transforms lives and the greatest evidence that we can produce is that I act better today than I used to act. Seems strange, doesn't it? that our proof would be no more powerful than me being able to convince someone that my behavior is better than yours, and if you want to behave like I do, then I can tell you the answer. Let me tell you about Jesus, and then you can behave and act like I do. That's the gospel message today. Get saved. Act like me. No, he's still transforming. He's still healing. Will my behavior be changed? But yeah, my behavior will be changed because I expect him to show up every day. I still expect him to heal. I still expect him to save. I still expect him to touch. I still expect him to love in ways that set people free. I still, because I get to watch it day after day. It hasn't changed And again, I give you wide berth for any perspective you offer. Their failure to accept the fullness of his healing and the full wonder of his blessing was due to their human assessment of a supernatural God. A human assessment of a supernatural God. And we have in the church largely made God human with human reactions, human responses, human frustrations, human disappointments, human desiring human outcomes, setting human goals, having human aims and purposes. And we've cut off the expectation of the miraculous. He's not human. We'll never understand him in human terms. We could say, well, Jesus was human. He was sinless and completely conformed to the will of his Father because he yielded his will to the Father always and everything. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.